Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is calling in from Washington, Maggie Slide. Welcome to the podcast, Maggie. Well, thank you for having me, Brother Osler. I appreciate it. And Maggie is a convert to our church. We're going to talk about her road. She identifies as LGBTQ. We're not going to, we'll let her tell more about where in the spectrum she identifies. Um, tell us where you're calling, where you're calling in from. What city are you in? And tell us kind of your age range right now. Well, I am a 52-year-old grandma, and I live in Olympia, Washington, which is the state capital of, of Washington State. And is it a rainy Olympia, Washington day, Maggie, or is it a sunny Olympia, <laughs> Not at Washington? All. I'm sitting here watching the sunset. <laughs> it's funny that you say that because I'm sitting in front of my window watching the sun. It's beautiful. And we'll get into this, but tell our listeners how long ago you joined the church. I joined the church um, about six years ago. I It was a very profound moment for me when I came to the church. I uh, got on my knees on March 6th, uh, 2013, and I asked Heavenly Father how to, become, how to come closer to Christ. And it's, it's interesting because God talks to me through the sun. Um, I, I can't, I can't place my, my finger on one important time that I had in my testimony when the sun wasn't literally shining on me like it is right now. It's hilarious. Um, because it, the sun came through the the window in the attic that morning when I said that prayer and it was so bright. And the first thing I, I felt and heard was this voice that I could feel that told me that I needed to become a member of a church that I had only been to once and as a child. And frankly, my only memory of that day was that I had to wear a dress and that I said a bad word later that day and got real trouble because I'd gone to church at the beginning of the day and I made that correlation. That's awesome. So, and tell our listeners how you identify now with your sexual orientation. Right now, um, there are many aspects of my sexuality, um, but I identify as asexual for many reasons. I am a trauma survivor. I had a very difficult childhood and um, two very difficult marriages, um, both experiencing some heavy abuse. And I, it's just not appropriate for me to be in any relationship at this point in time. I'm in therapy with a wonderful female um, LDS therapist, and I identify as completely asexual. And just thanks for being on the podcast and just opening your heart. The more, you know, I had lunch with my brother today, and we just sat there, and he's a pretty accomplished guy, and we're both in our 50s, and we just reflected we're all a little broken. <laughs> we all just have stuff in our lives, and some people kind of hide that and put on a good outer shell. But the older I get, I just realize that, and we sort of need to be honest and transparent with people that are close to us. So you said a beautiful prayer to start this podcast, and you're the first person I've had that identifies as asexual, and 
Um, and I just uh, will you define that for any of our listeners that may not know what asexual means? Because I may not know completely how you define that. Well, I I use asexual um, to describe what the LGBTQ community. Um, this, uh, uses for both aromantic and asexual, which is the absence of romance and the absence of sexual sexuality. It's interesting because there is um, definitely an overlapping of asexuality and um, chastity, but I'm not looking for a husband. I'm not looking to date. I'm not looking for any relationship at all. And because of that, I'm also not romantic. I'm aromantic. So in the LGBT community, there are two separate designations that I, quali- that, that I actually um, identify as, but I use asexual to describe them both. That's very helpful for me and our listeners. So. When you say you're not trying for any of those things, there's a side of me that would say, well, we all need that. You should keep the door open for that. But then there's a side of me that says, this is your personal revelation for your path. So who am I to suggest what you ought to be doing versus just saying, Maggie, I just support you on the path that you feel is right for you. Any thoughts on that? Well, I I, I appreciate that you support me on that, and I appreciate all of those people that, that choose to pray for me with, with whatever intent. I appreciate prayers. Um, but the, the thing of it is, is that for me, you know, for many, many people, um, sexuality is fluid. I have identified as many different sexualities during my 52 years of life, almost 53 years of life. I've identified very rarely as heterosexual. Um, most of my life I've identified as bisexual. Um, when I came to the church, I made a decision to live by the family proclamation and I made a very conscious decision to try to be heterosexual and try to live that life. And it hasn't worked out well for me. Um, I have a lot of triggers just, I mean, being in a room with a man. Um, it, It helps when they are... Uh, faithful holders of the priesthood, Um, but I've never been married to a faithful holder of the priesthood. The man that I married after I came to the church had been baptized, but then lied about his ordination. Um, I didn't find out about that until three months into our marriage. Uh, So I have a lot of betrayal and a lot of triggers where men are concerned. and I don't feel any attraction to them. But I have no desire to live against my commandments that I've and, and the covenants that I've taken. It's just a thoughtful answer, and I, I just honor your personal revelation. And I sense you've done a really good job of trying to do the best you can in life. One of the things I think it'd be good to link our listeners to is a couple of... I don't know if you call them blogs or websites. Tell us about the two websites that you have and and their focus and how to find them. 
Sure. Um, my I have blogged about my testimony. I'm I am what what I refer to as a um, emotional blogger. When I get passionate about something, I blog. I don't blog on a schedule. Um, so I've but I've been blogging about my testimony since before my baptism um, on a site that was that had been called slightlymormon.org. And in a play on my last name, but when the prophet said to quit using the name Mormon, I had to do some serious prayer and 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 ask for some revelation about what to change the name to. So my testimony site is now called, and this is a funny thing because when I read stories about the prophet and sister Emma Smith, and I. I, I, I hear or I, I, you know, read them being called Brother Joseph and Sister Emma. I never, ever hear them being called Brother Smith and Sister Smith. In that time in the church's history, they were all brother and sister first name. It, brother and sister wasn't supposed to push people away. It was supposed to bring them closer. And I fear that by using our surnames, we're pushing people away. So when I renamed my site, I renamed it SisterMaggie.com. So that's my testimony site, S-I-S-T-E-R-M-A-G-G-I-E.com. And my regular author website where I post to my readers where I'm writing what. Um, I'm an author. I'm a grad student. And I've, I'm always writing something somewhere. And where I update my readers about these things is at maggieslight.com, which is M-A-G-G-I-E-S-L-I-G-H-T-E.com. Thank you, and I encourage our listeners. I've scanned some of your articles and the things you've done, and it's been helpful for me. Um, Thank you. I kind of say a silent prayer to myself, Maggie, that I will ask questions that Heavenly Father wants me to ask to bring out the things that you could help with our listeners. But let's talk about trauma. Um, it sounds, and from what I know, you've experienced more than your fair share of this through no fault of your own. Um Talk about healing from trauma, and I don't know if you want to talk about the types of trauma to talk about the healing or just talk about the healing, because I think there's probably a lot of listeners that have experiencing or are experiencing trauma, and you've been on this road for a while, and maybe you can help heal them or give them hope by sharing your own experience and how to heal from trauma. So I'll just kind of leave. Where would you like to go with that one? <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's interesting that you bring that up. I, I attended a, a class for um, caretakers of uh, for caretakers of children who had survived trauma this last fall because my grandchildren are trauma survivors, and it breaks my heart to hear and see how many people are trauma survivors nowadays. I mean, we throw around words like trigger, but we really don't think about what a trigger means to a person with complex PTSD. 
I mean, just somebody raising their voice in a neighboring apartment can start my heart racing, can start me feeling, giving me feelings of fight, fight or flight. I need to do something. I need to call somebody. I need to get out of here, I, you know. And these are things that even after years of therapy, it's like, okay, you know, I have tools that I can use to deal with this. But it's something that I think that we need to, as a society, start educating everybody about because it is affecting everybody's life with the current, one of the major causes of drug abuse is child abuse. Child abuse is trauma. Child abuse causes complex PTSD, which leads to a numerous acting ways of acting out. In my life, I haven't acted out in, in, in the ways of drug abuse, but I have, before I came to the church, I was very much addicted to sex. And I used my sexuality as a weapon, as an escape, as anything to forget who I was. And this was even before I really knew who I was, which is a child of God. So trauma for me is very central as, as I described in the essay that this article that, that you and I connected on um, spawned from trauma and sexuality are as interwoven as a fine gabardine in my mind, you can't have one without the other. My trauma began when I was six, under six months old, according to doctors and therapists and forensically, you know, going through memories. I was under six months old when I was sexually assaulted the first time. Wow. So... You can't have sexuality without trauma in my life. Therefore, many of the reasons behind the choice to be asexual. That makes a lot of sense. Um, Thanks for just being honest with your own trauma and your own abuse that happened at a very young age. And when I hear that, it just breaks my heart. How do you, what advice would you have to people that want to overcome trauma? How would you give them hope? I, I would guess that there's a clinical path and, and maybe the atonement, but I don't, I think, and maybe other parts of, um, uh, parts or other paths that one needs to walk. Share some of your thoughts on that, Maggie. I can only share my path, and my path has been one of constant personal revelation. When I first came to the church, I was—I basically took a sabbatical from my life and poured myself into reading the scriptures for the first time, and I listened to general conference talks. I still have them on my phone, and I, and I play it at, on random, letting the Spirit 
decide what I should listen to. And the Holy Spirit's good at random, by the way. <laughs> but I, I really believe that when you ask God to help you recover, to help you to find your path and to help you heal and listen and take the time and bury yourself in scriptures, bury yourself in those ways that God can talk to you, get blessings, get priesthood blessings, listen to general conference talks, listen to those general authorities that speak to your heart and let the spirit work within you. I prayed for Heavenly Father. It was funny because I told Heavenly Father that I would go anywhere. I would make my home anywhere if he would find me a therapist who was female and LDS and who specialized in my specific trauma. Um in, in, in trauma recovery. And he found me somebody that was right down the road from my grandchildren. I mean, God works in his wonderful, mysterious ways, and he will help us if we give ourselves to him. I love that answer, and it's, it sounds like the path of a spiritual path turning to God um, having the Savior heal us, doing everything we can on that path, a spiritual path. But my experience is that you've got to also get good clinical help, just like you've been praying for the right therapist and you felt a female LDS therapist that knows your LDS history and your spiritual journey and also has expertise in the type of trauma. And I love that you've got both of those things in your life now to help you. Well, for me, it was it was imperative because, like I said, I get a lot of my my answers through personal re revelation. And having a therapist who didn't understand our religion could have landed me inpatient for many years. Yeah. <laughs> so I had to have somebody who understood my faith. And and, and interestingly enough, we are members of the same ward. Um, I I am a member of a relief society with more than six therapists in it. It's a good ward. <laughs> I feel well supported. That's a really good ward. It's a wonderful ward. Tell us your the church. Olympia second ward. Tell us your church calling, Maggie. Excuse me? Tell us your church calling. My church calling is a temple and family history consultant. And I have been called, I was called as a temple and family history consultant in the first ward that I was baptized in um, within, within a couple of months of my baptism. And that's pretty much been my only calling anywhere I have lived in that's any good. ward I've been in or branch. <laughs> um, before you, what kept you... Um, so I'm doing the math in my head. If you've been in the church about six years and you're mm -hmm. in your early 50s, so you basically were 40 years plus outside of the church, um, and you were a victim of trauma. You've talked about it right from the beginning of life, and I assume from what I've read that a lot of that continued in your life. 
How did you just, did you, did you, some people rightly so would get angry at God. Um, And I don't know if you got angry at God and how did you keep your faith in God when your life was so much harder than most people? Well, see, for me, I had it easy. Now, you may not think that, that, that this is true, but see, my, my main abuser was already angry at God and was a loud atheist and also was the first person I had who, whose name I took through the temple. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, my, my, my father was a very loud atheist, so God was, was mine. He was mine. I had, I mean, my, my, I had these private moments, like with my mom, I remember sitting, the first time I remember my mom talking about God, we were sitting on, on the driftwood in front of the Pacific Ocean, classic sunset Pacific Ocean moment. And my mom is talking to me, and I'm a very small child, and she points to the sun, and she points to the ocean, and she said, God did that. God makes that. Uh, Oh, okay. (laughs) But for me, it was a connection, and it has been a connection for 52 years, well, almost 53 years of my life, is that God makes that makes the sun, makes the sun rise, makes the ocean, makes the waves, creates these, this beauty in my life where I feel pain, he creates beauty. So I have an escape. And I think that's why I'm, that, that's, that's the photographer part of me. That's the, I, I share a lot of, um, quotes from general conferences and scripture quotes on photos that I take. And that's the piece of me that goes there is the person that's, is, is that little child who's, is looking at God. So he, he was my escape. He was my escape from the drama. So How could I be mad at him? I love the way you separated, um, that you own God because your abuser was an atheist. And so you said, this is, this is what I can own and who loves me. And I love that. I think that's a sign of incredible strength, Maggie, during a very difficult time. And you talk about the word primary abuser. I assume that means there's been other abusers in your life. Oh yeah. Um, my, my mom had a type. Um, she, um, both of the men that she, uh, both the men that she created children with, and the men that she raised us with, were um, child abusers. So um, it was all through my life. Wow. So. Um, I was going to ask another question. It came to my mind, but it just left my mind. I don't like that. I sometimes write questions down as I'm thinking. Um, why? Here's the question. Um, have you mentioned with your primary abuser that you have taken his name through the temple? And for, I think most of our listeners are LDS, that gives that person the chance to accept the saving ordinances of the gospel. And even if we feel that person is not 
has not lived a good life, we still recognize that person may change in the next life and may accept those ordinances. But I find it really courageous that you've you've opened a door for your primary abuser, um, the person that's harmed you the most, that you've opened this door. Just walk our listeners through. I don't know if you've forgiven your abuser or if it's a work in process or if you should ever forgive your abuser. Just share with us some of your thoughts on that. It is an extremely long process to forgive that many years of that horrifying of abuse. Um, My father is my primary abuser. He is... It's it's difficult because both my myself and my only sibling, my brother, we look so much like my father. We have so many of his genes. So um, when when my brother comes over, it's just like looking at my father. Wow, <laughs> um, that so could be triggering. It can be, but it's only triggering if we don't start processing the forgiveness and, and we can only do that with the strength of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus Christ has gave, what's interesting is I thought that I was right after I was baptized and I, I went through, I was baptized on March 23rd, 2013. And the first time that I took my relatives' names to the temple was April 20th, 2013. Now, as a medical marijuana user, April 20th has a different connotation. So I was for me, it was reclaiming the day and giving it a spiritual um, significance. And... I kind of tongue-in-cheek put my dad's name and card in the pile that I was going to take to the temple that day, thinking that, yeah, I'll show him. But when I got to the temple, it was a different feeling. Um, My grandfather's, my grandfather, his father, their names are the same two names in different orders. My grandfather's name is George Ronald. My father's name is Ronald George. So what was interesting is when they did the baptism, my grandfather's name was read twice. Wow. Instead of my father's name. So they had to do it again, which I... Which is something I don't think I'll ever forget, because my grandfather, who had been a very faithful man before his injury in World War II, um, he was struck in the back of the head by a Japanese rifle butt in New Guinea in World War II. And after that happened, he... Um, he was paralyzed for months. Then when he recovered, he didn't really recover because after World War II, you didn't have a lot of mental health care. You were put in an asylum, taken care of in a VA hospital and, you know, whatever back corner, or you just did what you could to deal with the pain. And unfortunately, what he did was drink. And um, he ended up 
in a car accident where he hit somebody and he was drunk and um, he followed that with um, taking his life. So it was very catastrophic end to what could have been a very wonderful life. And that's how my father's life began. My father was four when this happened. Um, And it happened in the house where he was. And so his life started with trauma. So when we all all go back to it, and and here's, here's another interesting fact. When I was researching PTSD, I discovered that there are genetic traits that make us susceptible to PTSD. So you have a grandfather who experienced PTSD in World War II, a father who experienced PTSD, at the at the knee of his father who committed suicide in the house who then abused his daughter and caused her PTSD so it was it's it's one of those things that I, if i look at it that way as an injury and i look at the picture of my father as a baby and i see the child of god and then i hear little stories from my aunt like the fact that he quoted on easter every year a scripture about hypocrisy because he saw the hypocrites around him judging his father and behaving abominably. So I, I, I forgive my father in pieces, but at the same time, I took his name, I had his name taken through. I can't say I took his name through because I didn't. I had his name taken through for baptism and, and confirmation, but I had, I held it in paperclip, and, and, and I used to I used to tease about the fact that God can hold you in purgatory, but I'll hold you in paperclip. That's awesome. <laughs> but I held him in paperclip until this year when I was impressed by the Spirit to give the card his 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 card to my bish my current bishop because my bishop right now I'm I'm in a wheelchair for reasons if you want to know go to my blog, um, but. My bishop keeps wanting to help me, and he keeps asking to help me. And I was impressed that one way that he could help me was to finish my father's ordinances or my father's work to the temple. And so it's current. My dad's card is currently with my bishop, and I know that he hasn't gone through the temple because I've been experiencing a lot of different trials with my bishop and and the the adversary. So. When, when it's done, these trials hopefully will calm down. <laughs> Maggie, I don't want to, I want to, what you talked about, about an abusive father and trying to understand the totality of the situation is really, really thoughtful. And I don't know how you do that when you're a victim. And you, And it probably takes decades to do what you just said, but I am so touched by what you said with trying to understand the totality of your father's situation and understanding his growing up and the the situation that he was in and the PTSD that was created in his life from his father who's had this war experience, which is another terrible experience. I love you humanizing your father, even though it, he did unspeakable things and um, with looking talking about his baby photo. <laughs> 
um, and this pure little innocent boy. And I have to, the thought that came to my mind was that, is that what you just said is what our Heavenly Father and our Savior may say about us when he understands the totality of our situation. And that doesn't take agency off the table. It doesn't take choice off the table. We're still accountable. And I think you know better than any of us, your father's accountable for the horrible, unspeakable things he did. But somehow, in the grace of Heavenly Father and the atonement to heal, um, I, I, I can't say I have hope for your father. That's something you would have to say because you're the victim here. Um, but I just thought that was so thoughtful, what you shared. And I think you would probably say to other victims, you don't feel that way yet. <laughs> you may never feel that way about your the person who abused you, your perpetrator, um, your assaulter. So I don't, I'm not expecting anybody to get where you got, but it is very, very thoughtful. And in some ways, maybe that heals you in some ways to be able to look at the totality of the situation and find grace in it. And maybe it heals you to have that temple card go through for your father. Um, I don't know, and I think everybody's on the oh, road. Definitely, it's definitely for me to be able to put forth forgiveness is 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 huge. Is a huge part of healing me. Um, I'm like I said, I, I, I'm in intensive therapy. I'm in therapy every week, and I have been for years, and I probably will be for many years to come. But if there. Sorry about the background noise. I've got two dogs that are decided that it was a time to fight right now. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, they uh, I hope in in actually not tongue cheek, but yet if if my father on the other side of the veil chooses chooses. Christ. I mean, there are there are so many steps that I have no knowledge of. I've never been on the other side. I can't say for sure. I've you know read what it's supposed to be, but what I've also known is that there's a judgment bar that he comes in front of, and that has I have nothing to do with that. That's between him and God, and I have no desire to stand between him and his God. So let it be what it is. And I I probably don't want to say this. <laughs> no, I, I'm not going to. Um, but I have hope to be sealed to my parents. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Yeah. It reminds me of a, a situation I'm aware of where a husband and a wife were married and the husband, you know, started to make really bad choices and was not a very good partner and ended up finding another partner and ended up then, after a period of time, dying by suicide. And I spoke, I remember speaking to his former wife and, you know, he had gone down this path, but she still, she knew... I think she knew who he was deep inside and not this last period of his life. And she still had hopes to somehow, she wanted to be sealed to the 
the original man she fell in love with. Um, she didn't want to be right. sealed to the guy who died by suicide, and she recognized that. But So maybe your hope is okay that at the core, um, you have loving parents that are at their core is good, but because of their life experiences, and that doesn't sort of take agency off the table, and it's not like we excuse this be horrible behavior. So it's complicated, and I guess we just leave it at... Heavenly Father's feet and the Savior's ability to heal, but I I like what you said, um, and I it I think gets, we both realize sorry, not it, every victim can say what you said. It it gets even more complicated because if you realize that I am a temple and family history consultant, and before that I was a genealogy buff, and I want to be sealed to my family. I want to be connected for eternity to these wonderful people who guide me through the veil. And some of them are on my father's side. Many of them are on my father's side. So you can't have one without the other. It is what it is. It is what it is. I feel like I'm <laughs> speaking to someone with great <laughs> emotional maturity and perspective. One of the things you said earlier in the podcast, I, I can't remember the right words, but you said you kind of talked about you turning to bad behavior because of your abuse um, in, you know, before you joined the church. And sort of the logical, you had a, a need to deaden the pain or deal with it or escape. And, um, and so I, I certainly when I was a singles ward bishop, I started to see bad behavior in YSAs. I called it the top of the iceberg stuff. Sometimes we'd see the bad behavior, but the longer I served, I sort of had to put the bad behavior on the shelf and try to understand what's going on at the bottom of the iceberg. Because sometimes, yeah, it's still bad behavior. It was a coping mechanism for really difficult stuff at the bottom of the iceberg. And I found, you know, I couldn't just look at the top of the iceberg and all bad behavior is not created equal. <laughs> um, and sometimes... I found that once I really understood the totality of the situation, Heavenly Father would, would not want me to talk too much about the bad behavior, but how to help somebody at the bottom of the iceberg sort of resolve these deep, um, difficult issues that often weren't their fault. Any thoughts on that in your own life? Well, I acted out in a sexual manner because for to be absolutely um, frank, I was looking for love. And the reason I was looking for love is because I hated myself. And I think that when somebody is acting out and searching so hard for somebody to tell them that they love them, and, you know, it may be in a, in a moment in, in while doing something nobody should be doing, but the words get said, even if they're not meant. And those words get thrown around in some very awkward situations, but yet they get said. And they aren't said in the places that they should be said. And that's what we need to understand. And that's what we need to focus on. And that's what we need to do is to say those words to our friends, to our brothers, to our sisters, to our children. We love you. And we need to act on it. 
Well, I have some tears in my eyes. I always pray these podcasts will bring out things that we hadn't planned on ahead of time. And I'm thinking of some dear sisters. Um, I probably saw this more with the sisters and the brothers during my assignment with the YSAs. And there were a couple sisters in particular that were sexually active. Um, but the more I listened to them and more understood the totality of the situation and really asked Heavenly Father for guidance, the more I felt that this is the only way they knew how to feel love. This is the yeah. only way that they could feel that someone cared about them um, was to be sexually active because of their home situation and and because they've never learned to be loved um, and never heard the words that you just described to our listeners that everybody needs to he hear. And, and often in the for these sexually active women, it wasn't really about sex. It was more about just needing to feel loved. And and for the guys, it was more about sex. And it really was, and it just added to their burden often. Um, if I just sort of reminded them about, you know, the law of chastity and and created some shame for what they've done, it just, I, I felt I was adding to their burden. Um, and I wasn't excusing their sin, but it just, I think... I just had to, and so what you're sharing really resonates with me. And I had, I just, I, I reflect that I wish I'd kind of learned some of that stuff earlier uh, because I sort of just, I kind of thought there was like a a sin repentance grid in the Bishop's Handbook where I looked up the sin and how frequent and how long since that somebody's done this. And here was the sets, you know, repentance. And the more I served, the more I got away from that because I just felt everybody has a different path to repentance and everybody has a different degree of culpability if that's a word for the sin and every sin is a little different and so when you talk about your abuse and needing to feel loved and finding that of being sexually active that certainly resonates with some of my experience and i don't know how you sort of work through that because now you're in a really good spot um i have two dogs you have two dogs <laughs> And talk about shame, because in your blog you talked about shame. Teach our listeners a little bit about your learning about shame and, and how to take that out of our lives. Uh, well, I'm still working on that one. Um, You're honest. I've, <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard, uh, especially in the LDS culture, because I've, it's, it's not a culture that... I was familiar with. I had come from a very quote-unquote sex-positive, body-positive type of environment that I had created for myself when I was trying to recover from the trauma before I came to the church. So my baptismal interview, my second interview with the mission president, um, I had this feeling, and, and it was interesting because I felt a significant amount of shame already uh, for having been involved in an adulterous relationship. And I kept thinking that that should be what the primary question of, of what all of this hullabaloo was about. But it's not the primary question of what the hullabaloo was about. There was nothing asked about if I'd ever committed adultery. It, I wasn't asked anything about, well, the, the commandment that I was asked about 
was if I'd committed murder or if I had committed a homosexual act. And I had not only been identified as a lesbian for several years and and had been with several women, but I have a lot of friends that are in the LGBTQ community, and that question just absolutely jarred me. Um, equating murder with being gay was so difficult for my brain to grasp. Um, and it is one of those things that I still, day to day, I am able to, um, I won't say rationalize it, but understand it as a violation of chastity. But it is something that I do wrestle with. But the shame involved in that because I felt so much shame from my actions, my own actions, when I started to understand the gospel, when I started to read the scriptures and started to understand the actions that I had taken and how against God they were throughout my life. And my my friends who were LDS kept trying to remind me that you're not held accountable for that that you do not know. And that only comforted me a little because I felt I, I still have a hard time when, when we study the part of the New Testament when we talk about Christ at Gethsemane because I felt that his blood was for the sins that I had committed and that's how I felt shame those are the tears that I cried trying to understand how I could have gone so far off the track and how I couldn't find my way to him until I was 46 years old. So that's the shame that I felt. And I still try to understand the difference between my homosexual behavior, as it's termed, and the adultery that I actually felt so, so ashamed of. Because that was against the commandment that I knew, even as a small child, thou shalt not commit adultery. And it echoed in my head. So... I was being reminded, and yet I did it anyway. Anyway. Thank you, Maggie. Um, I just appreciate you being so vulnerable and sharing some of your journey with us. And I think our listeners know when someone joins the church, the missionary will go through a baptism interview, and one of those, some of those questions then, if if someone you know has been in a homosexual relationship. 
um, the missionary re refers that to the mission president, which was probably a big surprise for you. Um, yeah. And very shameful moment, I would think, as you've described in your blog, to feel the shame of of that, recognizing that and sort of seeing that your inappropriate, I think you called it adultery, was not escalated to the mission president, but your homosexual monogamous relationship was. And and the shame that that created and perhaps the confusion in your mind. And, and I admire you just kind of working through that. I'm thinking of saying, well, I still feel good enough about this church and its doctrine that I'm going to work through this this experience and not just, you know, separate myself. Cause I, I well, how did you kind of process that? And did you consider not getting baptized or did you just kind of just move forward? Well, everything that I was reading was telling me to, that if I blaspheme against the Holy spirit, that that was the worst thing of all. So the Holy Spirit had told me to become baptized by this church. The Holy Spirit told me to become a member of this church. I couldn't not do what I was told. And so here you but, are just kind of handling more paradoxes in your life. You've been living with paradoxes your whole life and just, you know, contradictions. And and so I love the way you just cognitive went back. Cognitive dissonance. <laughs> and so you just said, I, I have to join this church. And I we all admire your faith, and I sometimes think of, um, sometimes I look at ways to, you know, our doctrine is the doctrine of repentance, and that you're clean when you're baptized, and and that happened for you, but sometimes the practice of our doctrine doesn't quite match our doctrine. So sometimes when I hear a situation like that, I think, well, is there a better way to to handle those sort of baptism interviews. And I don't sit in the general councils of the church that these things may discuss, and I have no standing, and I don't provide any recommendation. But in the back of my mind, I think it's okay to honor your experience that wasn't the best and think, could we, is the practice of our doctrine, could it be improved so people like you, Maggie, have a, a better experience? Because I think Christ doing baptism interviews, if he could do every one of those— to join his church, um, I think no one would feel shame in those interviews. I think that would be the bar, and we would leave the baptism interview with Christ as we're joining the church um, with no shame, full of hope and full of his love. So we just have more work to do, and I think that's part of being a restored church is we just have to improve sometimes. And I think it's okay to recognize we have work to do and just leave it to our leaders to try to improve things. But I admire you working through that. It reminds me of another story of an earlier podcast of one of our gay converts. And the mission president uh, uh, said, so tell me when you were sexually assaulted as a young boy to be gay. And that was just sort of a cultural assumption that that mission president had picked up, that everybody that was gay or lesbian, that only happened because they were a victim of sexual abuse. And this young man, this man joining the church, has not been a victim you know, of sexual abuse. And that was upsetting to him, but he worked through that kind of like you did and still joined the church as an active and continues to be an active member. So, well, actually, and it's interesting that, that you bring that up because something that I've also noticed is that um, other members 
who are trying to understand LGBTQ um, issues can tend to point to us being trauma survivors as a an excuse or a reason as for us to identify as LGBTQ. And that is insulting and offensive. Why? That's a great point. Why is that insulting and offensive? Because it's not taking into account that that person may have been gay before the trauma ever happened. And 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 and, it, and it's saying that being gay is 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 a symptom of trauma, which is what you're just saying that that person wasn't a trauma survivor, and it's it's taking such a complex issue and it's trying to make it binary, and it's not. That's really cool, Maggie. Being gay is not a symptom of trauma. I won't forget that for a long time. And I think, I call it nice tidy box thinking, that we want to put everything back in the nice tidy box so we explain things away. And I think straight people like me would have done that to kind of keep myself emotionally safe and to not have to fully engage in in the situation if I can explain being LGBTQ as a symptom of trauma or as a cause of trauma or as a, as a product of trauma and versus what you just taught us and what I've come to learn after talking to many LGBTQ people. And then it increases my responsibility from a ministering perspective to better minister if I can't put this back in a nice tidy box. Because <laughs> um, then I realize that, hey, this is more complicated and it's not binary to use that word that I thought you weren't used in a thoughtful way. So that's very helpful for me and hopefully our listeners. Thanks. I, it, it's something that's taken me 52 years to learn about myself and about my, my friends and the people around me. What do you do? This is a tender question because I know I haven't been a perfect parent and I assume you haven't been a perfect parent, but I, I sense you've broken the cycle of trauma, you know, in your family, um, you know, because you've been, I think that's one of the challenges. How do we break these cycles? How, any thoughts on how you break the cycle of trauma? Ooh, I'm going to be even more vulnerable here. Um, I will admit as a person who with um, mental illness, mental injuries that I had not broken the trauma cycle. I was not a good mother. Um, my, I am doing my best to be a good grandma. I am That's not great. the kind of grandma that I was a mom. My children are fantastic parents, two of my children. One of my children um, is not involved in his children's life. But it's a journey. It's it's such a hard path. The only thing that anybody can do is to educate themselves and to keep learning. Um, keep learning about how to treat other people. And I swear that only comes with age. I mean, there are some just absolutely golden souls that are born knowing it from birth, but 
they are so few and far between, it's not even funny. <laughs> that was a pretty honest answer, Maggie, and I hesitated to be honest answering the question because I, I am not a perfect parent, but I'm cert- I didn't grow up in a traumatic home, and so I would assume that Heavenly Father, if he were on the podcast, would have a great deal of understanding for, just like you do for your own father and grandfather, that if you've grown up in a traumatic home, then you're you're going to create some of that at times, hopefully in a lesser way. But I love your answer that I'm doing, I think at some point we just have to say, I can't go back and change the past. I I have to focus on what I can control. And I love you said, where you're saying, I'm being the best grandma I can. And I think God would just wrap his arms around all of us that have, have regret about the past and say, just don't worry about you, what you can't control. Don't live with regret. Leave that at my feet. Um, these are my children, too, and I have this incredible plan of salvation. And, and, and sort of try to fill you with peace. Excuse me. It seems like I have fur children who are acting up and talk about learning how to to be with people sometimes you have to learn how to be with animals that's just fine (laughs) so we're coming up to the hour mark just any final any thoughts other topics you want to talk about or things you want to share with our listeners Maggie well I'm <laughs> it, it, it's funny because anytime that I'm asked things like this or it comes to be testimony Sunday, I'll, I'll sit there, you know, first thing I want to say is, no, absolutely not. But then I feel this still small voice. <laughs> and what what that spirit is saying to me right now is that God meets all of us where we are. He doesn't ask us to be anybody that we're not. He knows us. He has numbered every hair on our head. He may be not any respecter of persons, but he knows our name. And he gave you one. So, you know, if if you're searching and if you're having a faith crisis, hit your knees. Search for his words. Go to him. I love that, Maggie. A quote I read a lot on this podcast is the wounded healer. The wounded healer is someone that can lead others out of, others out of the desert because they know the nature of the pain. And you are a wounded healer. Uh, you have experienced so much pain and trauma and um, difficult things, many that are outside of your control. And I just, I love your golden nugget insights about God needs all of us. So, you know, we need you in our church to become the body of Christ. We need to be. You have gifts and attributes. And so you could say, well, I'm this broken person like we all are, and I'm not because of my pat, but you don't, you're able to contribute and you have incredible insights on this podcast and it makes me grateful for every member of our church just like you said and we need everybody we have to we need everybody's voice and perspective and we need the beautiful diversity that everybody brings including dogs um, 
and they have a loud voice. <laughs> we love your dogs. There's going to be some animal what? lovers that maybe even know what kind of dog you have that's barking. Um, uh, they're uh, two labs, and two what's labs. really interesting about them is if I say the word church and in in respect to them, they get very excited because our ward is held at the Stake Center in Olympia, where there's a huge field in back where they love to run. <laughs> and when I was homeless, um, we would spend a lot of our days. Um, at the uh, pavilion, and I would take out my little camp stove and make my meals, and and they and charge my phones, and they would run, and so that they have good memories of church too. I love that. <laughs> so, thank you, Maggie Slight, S L I G H T E, and I'm gonna just Maggie's testimony website is sistermaggie.com. And her author site is Maggie Slight, S-L-I-G-H-T-E dot com. And on behalf of all of our listeners, Maggie, thank you for sharing a little bit of your life. Um, I, you're not, I think you're a hero. I mean that so sincerely for being alive, um, not choosing to leave with all the pain, finding God and Christ in our church, contributing in our church, I think you're a hero. You may not feel comfortable with that term, but given everything that you've been dealt and your ability to deal with that and move forward and have this wonderful feeling about God and Christ in our church and the healing power of baptism and having the Holy Ghost and taking your abuser's name to the temple, it's, I think you're a hero, and I think it's a remarkable story. And I know there's hard days ahead for you and for all of us, but... We all need each other, and I think it's courageous of you to be so vulnerable. I think that's a strength, and it helps us to connect in an authentic way when we're vulnerable. So now people that hear this say, well, if Maggie were in my ward, I know I could talk to her about this and this and this because I have some of the same challenges, and I need people in my life like Maggie that kind of get it. So I admire you being so vulnerable. I think it's a sign of strength and courage, and... And we'll just sign off and thank our listeners for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler.